Welcome to 7 Questions About Death. I'm Beth Jansen. Most people are pretty uncomfortable talking about death. I hope this program can help to change that and make death a more natural topic of conversation. Today's guest is Malcolm, a philosopher. But he was fully conscious of it and seemed to accept it with a great degree of uh, dignity and peace. Question one. What do you believe happens to a person's consciousness or spirit after the body dies? I think nothing happens to those. Uh, Everything we have being conscious seems to be connected to our perceptual apparatus, I suppose. And so when that stops working, there'd be no, uh, there'd be nothing there to, to be conscious of. There's no mechanisms to have that consciousness. So it'd be zero. And uh, I liked how you said the consciousness or spirit, assuming, you know, some people may treat them the same. I, I wouldn't. I would say the spirit is not something I tend to believe in. So all consciousness arises from the brain and the physical matter. Is that your belief? Yeah. I mean, consciousness is very bizarre. And exactly how that would come about uh, is not a question I can answer, uh, not knowing. Let's say we see red. So there's the real, you know, there's a consciousness of that redness. But then we could say, well, that redness is... We, we could sort of track down what, what that is in terms of the light waves hitting all the various parts of the eyes and the, and the brains and stuff like that. But even then, we could still say, but that wouldn't produce redness. So we could we could have you know nanometer wavelengths and doing all that kind of stuff. There's still not the redness. So some people still think that there's something very, very different there about that. But uh, it, it's peculiar. And uh, to exactly describe, you know, well, how can we describe that the quality of redness? Uh, independent of, you know, whatever that's going on. It's tricky. My train of thought is moving to a slightly different example. Uh, I'll come back to the, the redness. But the same thing we, we would say when we look at lightning, you know, we really see there's something really, you know, it's pretty fancy, but it's really electromagnetic energy. And so when you explain all you're seeing is electromagnetic energy, of course, we're not talking about the consciousness, but what the thing is, a lot of us might say, I, I don't know what that's about, but that's not describing the lightning. And I, I think there's something similar going on with the redness. It's like we may be misdescribing our own consciousness. I think we can see red in dreams, for example. And then when you think of understanding what color is, that should be impossible because there's no light going on. And so what is this redness that we're perceiving? I'm not able to go through those explanations but it strikes me as more plausible that uh, there's an explanation along those lines than there is some completely alien feature that's not connected to our organs or biology or the bits and matter that, that make us up. So once that's gone, the perceptions and the consciousness go with it. Question two. Have you ever been present when someone else's life ended? We were all present with my father's dying, 
but I, I don't think I was actually in the room when he died. I was there with, with cats. We put down cats and actually just recently a dog. That, that was actually like a month ago. So, um, but with my father, he knew he was dying. We knew he was dying and he could just, you know, the rattling of his, everything was just sort of, uh, he was stopping to eat and, and it was just liquids at this point. And, uh, but I think it was actually my daughter and my niece, his grandchildren that actually held his hands when he died, when he actually did the passing, which was pretty cool. So I guess I wasn't there for that. And my mother died in her sleep. So we didn't know about that one. So I guess the best one would have been our dog when we put down the dog. Uh, and, and we've done that with a cat too. And it's very, I guess, surreal for sure. There's just the completely relaxing of the body, but at least that's because of the medicine. I, I don't know if that would be always the case with uh, dying. Uh, but then when the cessation stops, there's that, like, that's now just a corpse. It's very, very strange. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is there is a point when you know that the whatever the consciousness or animation was there, they were alive, and then just matter or just a corpse afterwards. Yeah, with our dog, the veterinarian was there and, and had the heart monitor on, and so was able to tell us, okay, now she's she's gone now. Whereas, like, I, I don't think I would see... Like, at what point is the cessation, you know, the, the stopping? I don't think I saw that or felt that kind of degree. Uh, my wife was holding our dog, and I was sort of more holding her and and feeling the, the top part of the dog's head. So I didn't feel any of the coldness or shift or any of that kind of thing. But I, I remember the eyes are still open, which is bizarre. So our dog would have died before closing her eyes. You think, oh, I'm getting sleepy, I'll close my eyes and now die. But the dying happened even before that point. So, Did the eyes close that later? Stayed open. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking like, I imagine when I'm dying, oh, I, it's so peaceful, I'll be like sleeping, I'll close my eyes first and then I'll die. But you're dying before you even get to that point, so. Mm. Yeah, it must have been disconcerting to see the dog's eyes still open. Yeah, it gives a sense that, wait a second, is she really dead? You know, <laughs> we're just going to leave her now. I mean, wait, she doesn't look dead, but yeah, mm. looks can be deceiving. Well, my condolences. Oh, thank you. Is there anything more that you wanted to say about your father's passing that you feel comfortable saying? The interesting thing, interesting, I mean, this, this does sound strange. These are my parents I'm speaking about, and I love them both, and they love me. I had a good good childhood and everything, so there's no, whatever I say, no, nothing to do with that. My mother generally feared an awful death. Her sister and her mother had a slow, painful, agonizing dying, and she wanted me to enact active euthanasia if that were possible. It was you know, probably wouldn't have been possible, but she was adamant that she did not want to die that way. And she ended up dying in her sleep. Her parents had gone visiting friends. They went on a ski trip and they came back. She had a great time, saw a lot of friends, you know, put her clothes away, went to bed and just didn't wake up. I don't know what happened in the night. Like, was there a sort of a panic or whatnot? Uh, but it looked like, you know, it, she was only 60. So it was pretty young, but good for you, mom. Yeah, that's that's what you wanted, how to die. My father was kind of the opposite, not so much in the pain, but he knew fully well that he was dying. He had cancer, you know, the typical bouts with cancer, they they come and they go, and eventually it was just taken over his body. There's nothing he can do. 
But fortunately, he wasn't in a lot of pain, but he just knew his organs were all completely shutting down. So he invited our family there, like a lot of the people, and got to talk to us, got to clarify some of his will and, you know, all that kind of scenarios. And then it was only the last maybe three days that were pretty, you know, definitely uncomfortable for him. But then the uh, the nurses who were there, we he died at home. Uh, was in Quebec, they, they would keep upping the painkiller at the same time, knowing that that's also increasing the likelihood of the organ shutting down. Mm-hmm. And he, but he was fully conscious of it and seemed to accept it with a great d- degree of uh, dignity and peace. And uh, in a way that I, I can't imagine being so accepting the way that he was. So, I mean, the, those two deaths are kind of polar opposite, but both really good ways of dying. Question three. Have you ever experienced communication from someone who is no longer alive in the physical world? Or have you wondered if you were receiving communication from someone who has passed on? For sure, I would have gone with the perception. I seem to be having this you know, perception. Uh, when my grandmother died, she seemed to appear a lot in my dreams coming in in a horse and wagon for some reason into the driveway and or into the garage and coming up and I was going down to visit her. And I would have dreams of my father and my mother, uh, Sandy, our dog, we just put down uh, our cats. In hindsight, I don't think it's that surprising that we tend to dream about people we just lost that we care about. So then the new question is, is this an attempt of the people trying to re-communicate with me? Uh, I I don't know if I ever really seriously thought that. Maybe while I was dreaming, I would have that sort of sense. Uh, But I think even then, while I'm dreaming, it's not so much that I'm thinking they're coming back from the dead. Sometimes there's confusion at, wait a second, I thought you were dead. (laughs) But a lot of the time, this is the world that's in the dream. So... So I feel like I have experiences that may be interpreted as people uh, people who are dead trying to communicate with me, but I would never, I never really interpret it that way. Mm, that's so interesting. I can certainly relate to, you know, people who have passed on simply being characters in your dreams in a sense. But some other people that I've spoken with, certain dreams seem to stand out with a different type of quality or it's clear that the figures want to communicate something with them. So they're not simply characters that are inhabiting an inner world from your life. To go a little further, has that ever happened that you recall in your dreams? Yeah, I think, um, you know, definitely I've had dreams where they have different quality of that dream. Now, not necessarily in this case, but but I do know, uh, you know, we could speak about those, what are they called, vivid dreams or something like that? And they really influenced me. I mean, I've been influenced by some of those kinds of dreams, trying to figure them out. Or where you look up, there's a whole bunch of books on the dream metaphors and all these kinds of scenarios. So, but to go back to the, the sense of the, like, yes, I do know there's a difference between a dream, like there's characters in a dream, and then there's something else. There's another presence in a dream and whatever that difference is. So I've had those kinds of experiences, not necessarily with um, people uh, that have died, but maybe some other kinds of messages from the beyond or the your spiritual guardian telling you something. But yeah, I'm more inclined to be skeptical about those things. You could ha- I could have experiences, and the issue is, what's the interpretation of those experiences? So I'm reluctant to interpret them in in ways that would kind of counter 
everything else uh, that I would understand of, of the world. To interpret them that way would be would be more disruptive than not that it's bad. I mean, it would be bizarre, but it would be more. Um, it would be too strange of a world because we have no experience of anything like that. Like you know, other than these kinds of one-shot scenarios or these experiences, the phenomenological experiences. But I think we have a lot of phenomenological experiences that are not reliable. And so the issue is why should these be any more reliable than a lot of others? So it's a reliability test. But going back to the perception of red, it seems like nothing actually is reliable that we perceive. Well, yeah, we could go that way uh, and say, like, everything, our whole world is only through our perceptions, and we can never get outside of our perceptions to find out if that's so. Yeah, absolutely. But that doesn't throw everything out. It Rather, we say, okay, well, which are the kinds of things we have to accept? You know, even if we're totally dead wrong, our lives seem to go in such a way that we believe our perceptions. Uh, otherwise, you know, like a train's coming and I don't believe my perceptions, then they're run over, they don't pass on their genes. So more likely than not, most of our perceptions are probably vertical. We'll never prove that, but we'd have to be cautious because not all of them are. So now how do you distinguish the ones that we should generally reliably trust and those that we should be suspicious about? And uh, the further removed they are from what you can sort of reach out or test or replicate by some other kind of perceptions, the more suspicious we should be. Red is, you know, those kind of, some of those kinds of qualities are peculiar because I'm seeing this red. In fact, you and I could see totally different things. As long as we name that thing red, we'll always be in agreement, but we can never show you my red and your red and, and compare inside our brain. So what is this red? We're not even clear what this red is, to now think that this thing is sufficient to prove a consciousness that is beyond the pure, I guess, the matter sense would be uh, presumptuous. <laughs> I'll say it. Yeah, I like how you brought that back to our topic. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You're listening to CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton. You're listening to Seven Questions About Death. Today I'm speaking with Malcolm. He's a philosopher. Question four. Who do you want to be with you when you die? And what circumstances would you choose if you could choose them? Yeah, I guess uh, would be my wife and daughter would be would be fantastic, but the circumstances, I guess, yeah, if I could choose, would probably be in a home. Even in your home, as we know, we sometimes you can't be in your own bed because it's up to the stairs, or you need some other stuff. And it's like death is very, very messy. The dying part is very, very messy. And so you might be in your house, but you're in some kind of a hospital bed that can be raised and lowered and. You still have some other stuff. So it's typically, it's not like really homey. It's, it's not anything you would really imagine. Um, but but still, if I could have a pillow, <laughs> be on a pillow in a bed versus a roadway or something like that, or ditch, uh, it'd probably be better. You're dreaming small. You just want a pillow and a bed. <laughs> something attainable, I think, is, is useful. 
Yeah, I don't I don't know. I keep thinking between my mother's dying and my father's dying, which would be more interesting. You kind of want a sense of that last, you know, let's say it's your last dying and you you'd want to look around and sort of see this is the last image I'm I'm getting of of the earth, the world. And I think that would be pretty cool. And so where would that put me, you know, maybe in a woods or beside a creek or uh, something nice to look at in nature. But the reality of dying, it's going to be your throw-up bucket and your tubes and like that. On the other hand, looking at a, a loved one would be would be pretty cool. Although you'll see them crying and everything and being all sad. You want to know before you're dying that you're going to die and be with people that you love, as opposed to the dying in your sleep or suddenly like walking along and suddenly having a brain aneurysm and dropping dead kind of thing. Am I right that you would prefer to have some consciousness and some ability to say goodbye? I'm torn. I'm not sure myself. Uh, because the complications being consciousness uh, are can be really bad, uh, I might <laughs> I might prefer the, the sudden death. Uh, the concept of walking along and, and dropping dead is it's always embarrassing. Like if you stumble in public, it's like you don't want that or you fall. You don't, you don't want that. I'd rather you know not do that in public. Uh, but in my bed, you know, like my mother died just in her sleep. That sounds okay. But I guess maybe ideally the night before, okay, you're going to die this tonight. So I can say goodbye to people, can have no qualms, write my last, uh, oh, I don't know what, you know, we're all concerned about what we're going to say. And uh, I wouldn't have a clue. Something like, ah, this is shitty. I didn't, I didn't want to die or whatever. I don't know. Some great moment. Yeah. How could you wrap up a life or put it in a comment? You don't know. For me, I would hope that my life has been good enough that my dying won't make me feel like I'm regretting missing anything further. Question five. How do you feel about the fact that you will die? Are you afraid of your death? To return to the last piece, I'm afraid of dying. Uh, I think that could be really painful. Uh, I, I could just imagine not being able to breathe or, you know, those last moments of, uh, it'd be awful. So I'm afraid of dying. The death, I mean, if it is just nothing, then you can't really be afraid of that. I think it's Epicurus says, uh, where death is, you are not. Where you are, death is not. You know, it's in that sort of degree of consciousness. In that sense, we'll never be dead. Actually, the, the pre-born state probably is like the post-death state. So we can't really complain about like, oh, back in the day before I was born, there's nothing there. And similarly, after death, so it'll be just the same. But yeah, the dying part doesn't sound good. And I guess the difference between the pre-born state and the post-death state is that at least now we're alive. And uh, probably, you know, most of us have this you know, as long as we're healthy and, you know, ha relatively happy, we want to kind of continue this along. Maybe not the aging part <laughs> that accompanies, accompanies that, unfortunately. Uh, but, you know, as long as we can still continue on, being alive is great. And you look around and, oh, what could I, what could I do? What could I enjoy? So I guess the dying, I don't look forward to. The death, I guess I have no choice <laughs> on that one. If it's like getting a, a shot or you have to go to get a needle, just don't think about it. Just go get it <laughs> just, and move on. Question six.
Are there any traditions or practices connected with death which you find meaningful? I have a lot I find meaningless. <laughs> a lot of the religious practices I find really appalling for the most part. Actually, it's strange. I mean, I've gone to, you know, my aunts and my uncles, uh, you know, plus other people. And I knew neither of them were that religious, but it was in a, a standard thing is you go through a church and then you get these religious messages given by people who didn't know either my uncle or my aunt. And because they don't know what much to say, they basically just use this opportunity to uh, preach the Bible and God and uh, and all this kind of stuff. You better live, you know, better lives or whatever, or else you're going to go to hell. That's just <laughs> so so wrong. I, I find so not comforting, such a, an abuse of the situation. So I'm not too happy, not too pleased about most of those services. But I think having a service, having something to, closure isn't really the right term, but make it official, make a, some kind of a recognition of the life of that individual, I think is pretty good. And it's good psychologically for the survivors. What I'm talking about the survivors, the, the person who died, you know, they're not going to care. So I think some kind of services, I think maybe, you know, the celebration of life type events are pretty good ways to go. I suppose too, listening to the uh, person's wishes, you know, would be nice. Let's say you were an executor of somebody and they want a high mass, high Catholic tradition. Well, then we should set that up for them, I suppose. Even though if I'm, my theory is right, it, uh, it doesn't matter to them. <laughs> what we do but still that was their wish and you try to satisfy their wishes if you had agreed to it although alternatively just say there's sorry there's no way i can do that buddy uh should we bring in you know somebody else to be this executor for you that's another possibility so if someone passes who's close to you do you have some personal way of mourning or traditions not really i would think about the individual yeah, I'm probably not great at that aspect. I don't tend to get too emotional about things like that. A lot of people always seem to wonder, uh, I'm not really participating, but it's not that I'm not, you know, I'm quietly doing it, I suppose. I think at some point I became a stoic. Uh, and early in my life, I sort of thought that's probably the way I'm going to go. You know, Epictetus, for example, he'd be saying things like, not so much somebody dies, but something bad happens to you, some, something bad happens to somebody else. I mean, he doesn't quite go there. I mean, I would like to say, well, if I could help, I'll do so. But if there's nothing more you can do, I'm not sure what what's the point of having any, you know, emotions about it. Doesn't seem to do anything. Question seven. If you could ask a source of all knowledge some questions about death, what would you ask? You'd think I would ask, uh, hey, what's death like? <laughs> Something along those lines. But the source of all knowledge would have to also be, to ask that question, would have to, I would also assume that they would have, be a source of knowing what it's like in the death state. And so I don't believe that anybody can have such a the knowledge. So I'd be hard pressed to ask that question of the individual. What can we learn from death? Maybe a good question. 
you know, like imagine if we created the world, we're the gods and we created the world. And so this particular God decided to say, well, we'll cut them off, uh, you know, at around this age. And then you'd say to yourself, well, was is that a good move or, or not? You know, a lot of the questions about imagine if we live forever, how boring that would be. <laughs> uh, but, but that would also include the aging. But even if we weren't aging, we just constant, you know, I think there would have to be some development, some growth, but growth generally has with it there's a cap there's a point when the more the more you grow it also sort of ceases the only things that are really immortal have no growth at all right like a stone or whatever maybe they're not even immortal and so it seemed difficult to imagine a life without death certainly experientially that's all we experience so how could it be different but still given that there's this death a limit does that help us at all uh, or what can we learn? I don't know what help us. It's not like there's a plan here, but but what could we learn from that? And I, I remember always thinking about uh, like if you're on your deathbed and you look back, you don't want to regret something. And so to say, what should I do today or in my life or in general? How to avoid being on my deathbed and regretting something? But I never really know what that would be. And then it's almost inevitable to regret. Like so, uh, so I'm not clear. So maybe I would ask that uh, all knower, like what the good lesson from death would be. That's what I would ask. I can't too much of some things and not enough of others, just like all life lovers. Why changed and changed and changed and Change from one thing to another. I've had complicated dealings with complicated feelings, and I've cut and bruised and torn. Thank you to today's guest, Malcolm. Malcolm is a philosopher. The song we just listened to is called Protons, Neutrons, Electrons by The Cat Empire. You've been listening to Seven Questions About Death. I'm Beth Jansen. If you're interested in being interviewed, or if you have a comment or a question, please get in touch. My email is sevenquestionsaboutdeath at gmail.com. The seven is a number seven. Thanks for listening. <laughs>